Again, there will be sheets at the back. And since you've got that, some of you will have it in front of you. This is the chiastic structure within some of the psalms. And I talk about chiasms there, so you have that. And then you see Psalm 15 through 24 and how that's laid out for you in a chiasm. Um, we talked about that, uh, and, and it's described on here, so I won't go through that again. And then Psalm 22, the, the chiastic structure there. So some people mentioned that it might be helpful to have, and so you can pick that up at the end there at the table back there. Let's bow for a word of prayer because today I have a short day, but I have a long lesson. So we're, we're going to be talking fast and moving fast. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us in all things. We're thankful for this past week and all the things that have been accomplished. We thank you for your goodness, your provision, your mercy to us. And today we ask for your grace as we gather together to worship you, to listen to your word, to be taught from the scriptures here in the Psalms and then later from the book of Hebrews. Lord, I pray that you will open our spiritual eyes that will see your wonderful beauty and truth in your word. And I pray for all those who are gathered here this morning. Father, we're thankful for them and may you bless them and help me uh, to be clear in my words and in my thoughts as I deal with so many Psalms here. So may you be glorified in it all. We pray it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to start by just doing a quick review because some of you might not have been here for some of this. This is a plot line uh, from T.M. Suffel. Uh, He is from England. Uh, I got this. Uh, I've given you sheets before, so you got some. But this is a simplistic one, and I like that. Fred Sloan sent this to me along with an article from this guy, and I really enjoyed it. And so if you look here up on this, you will see uh, that the book of Psalms starts with those, the gateway Psalms 1 and 2, uh, about the two ways, the way of the blessed man and the way of the wicked man. And then in chapter 2, you see the wicked men come out as against the Lord's anointed, but we see the Lord's anointed, and that if you want to be blessed, you better take refuge in the Lord's anointed. In the uh, book 1, which runs from 1 to 41, we see, therefore, this, the anointed king suffering. This is going to parallel, in many ways, the life of Christ. But he is suffering. He's suffering for righteousness' sake. That's why in some of the Psalms, such as 17, 26, and 50, 35, you will see David talk about his own goodness. And you say, what? But there are some things there that help us to understand why he's saying that. It goes beyond himself, while also being within the parameter of his being a king and doing what is right. Uh, more about that later if we need to explain that further. I may take some time next week. I don't have the time today, though. So he is suffering for righteousness' sake. He is chosen, he's anointed, and his heart is a heart for God. He looked for a man after God's own heart, and David was the man. And then book 2, 42 to 72, the king reigns. And, and so we see him ascend to the throne. And we see he's still fighting certain battles, though. Did I just go off, or is that just my ear? We okay? We're okay. Okay. Um, and then, and then, book three, seventy-three to eighty-nine, and we'll get into to that 
far today, uh, we will see the king and the kingdom, and they're waiting. They're waiting to see all the promises fulfilled that were made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning verse 8. So there's all these promises that were coming, and so they're looking forward to this great kingdom that stretches from the river, from sea to sea, and so this, this is a big hope among them. But book 4, we find that there is judgment based upon the sins of God's people. And in judgment, therefore, they are loathing their situation. They're looking for a king. They're looking for someone to redeem them, to rescue them. Uh, And they go into a time of repentance, but they also go into exile. And then in book five, we see the restoration, where while they are in exile, now suddenly they are praying that God would give them a new exodus. Now, if you look at then the last few words here, the, the Hallel at the conclusion, 146 to 150, we see praise because... They are grateful, and they're now living in anticipation of that coming kingdom. So that's the overall flow. By the way, does anybody remember the outline for the book of Exodus? I know, I brought up ancient history, didn't I? Misery, deliverance, and gratitude. If you look at these last three points... There is misery and judgment there and the repentance that is needed. And there is deliverance and restoration for a second exodus. And there is praise or gratitude. So again, this, this is the summation of the Christian life. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism lists that in the first two of uh, its, its uh, questions. Uh, the, uh, now, each of these books... In the psalm, you may remember, it has an overriding theme, and it ends with a doxology of praise to God. We saw that earlier. We'll see some today. And book 1 runs from 1 to 41. We have that gateway. Book 2, then, we see the suffering Christ. He is the suffering servant there. Book 3, I've got more here, but I'm kind of editing as I go. We saw that there would be uh, David has been promised certain things, but we're not seeing the fulfillment of all the promises. Why not? Well, it was to his offspring. Well, how far do we have to go along in the offspring before we see the promises fulfilled? So we'll we'll see that in Psalm 73 to 89, there are some very earnest, agonizing, and I will put it this way, edgy prayers to God. God, why? Where? Where are you? Why haven't you done something about all this? Well, why are you where you are? You know, sin demands repentance. And they have not repented. And so then we have the the looking for restoration and the joy that that brings. Now, as of last week, um, we were nearing the end of book one. And I want to get into book three today by, by the end of the hour. And I don't even have a full hour here, but uh, I, want, I want to move quickly th- through some psalms then. And in that previous session, uh, together, we, we took a more detailed look at Psalm 15 to 24, which was important to see how the psalms, you will see chiasms uh, even today in some of the things I do. There will be chiasms. I may not point them out, but they're there where something you start with, you end with. 
And, and so all of those, and that's why I wanted you to have a sheet as well. We saw how t- Psalm 22 was that w- marvelous picture for forecasting the death of Christ and what he would do for us. So now let's jump back into the flow of the Psalms in, and we, we pick it up in Psalm 31. In Psalm 31, we still uh, sense that there are struggles that are part of David's life, even though uh, now he is uh, moving toward kingship, but, but he is not the king at this point. Four times here in this particular psalm, we will see a key word, refuge, verses 1, 2, 4, and 19. And I would call your attention back to Psalm 2, which says you must take refuge in God. So here are in the anointed king. But David himself needs a refuge because he's being attacked. And there are three times that David rejoices and looks to God's steadfast love in this psalm, 7, 16, and 21. And could I say to you, as you're, if you mark your Bibles, as you go through reading the psalms, and by the way, somebody came up today and told me that they had read through the psalms in that pattern and had gotten through all the psalms and, and that it really was a good project to do. Uh, but uh, reading through the psalms, if you would mark steadfast love, or the love of God that you see, you will find that there is just a magnificent abundance of talking about the steadfast love of God. This is, you maybe have heard this Hebrew word before. I've heard it thrown around in other classes. Hesed, which is the, the God of grace. This is his loving kindness to his people. It's a covenant love. It's a committed love. And linked with that is the word faithfulness. So he loves us, and he is always also faithful to us. So when David faced hardships, and they were many, his refuge from the trouble was the Lord, in whom was his trust. And that word trust, there's another word. If you'll circle that every time you read through the Psalms, you're going to find there's an overabundance of that, and then the steadfast love of God. So that's what David entrusted himself to. And in fact, here in verse 5 of 31, he commits his spirit to the Lord in these times of trial. These are the very words that Jesus himself used in Luke 23, 46. When he was on the cross, he committed his spirit back to God. And so this, he is, uh, David is picturing for us uh, the Lord himself. And David encourages his readers here also in the concluding course. And look at this down at the last bullet where he, he says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. There's your two ways of Psalm 1. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You know, this is a, therefore, this Psalm 31, as you read it, if you're looking for some strong encouragement in your life, this is a very good refuge psalm for you. And so I would encourage you to take that up when you go through those times of trials. So it's a great psalm for our hardships that we face in our daily grind. But what if, see now he was being persecuted. What if our struggle is within, in our own hearts, with our own sin, with our own failure? What do we do? Psalm 32. Have you ever heard the words assurance of pardon? If you haven't, 
You've been sleeping during church. All right? Assurance of pardon is a wonderful time in our service, I think, as we confess our sins and, and then we quietly, privately confess our sins and then we, we get an assurance of pardon from whoever is standing leading the worship service. This is a psalm of assurance of pardon. Let me show you how comforting this is. I think it's one of the best assurance of pardon passages that you can get, though they're all over Scripture. Look what it says here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now notice, three times as you look at these verses, three times or three words are used to describe our sin. So it it encompasses so much our sin, our iniquity, and our transgressions, verses 1 and 2. And there are three words used for assurance here, assuring forgiveness. The word forgiveness itself, the word covered, and the word count. David said, I'm not going to try to cover my own sins. That's what he said earlier in the verse. God is going to cover my sins. And he will not count it against me. And so this is a a, a full spectrum of sin that is declared forgiven. When David attempted to hide or to deceive regarding his sin, verses 3 and 4, there was only misery, remorse, guilt, weakness, heaviness upon him. But there came that day when confronted by Nathan, if we go back uh, to the prophet Nathan, go back to the day when David had committed the sin of adultery. He acknowledged, confessed his sin, received forgiveness and cleansing, verse 5. And if you look here then, therefore, here is the assurance of pardon. We can rejoice in the practical result of our acknowledgement and confession of sin. And here it is. We receive forgiveness. Forgiveness, and I'll take it to the New Testament, that word means to let go of something, to release something. You're released from the sin, from the guilt that brings heaviness upon you. You are blessed, it says here in Psalm 32, 1, which reminds us again, if we meditate in the Word, we will be blessed and we will avoid sin as well. And then we're accounted as uh, and acknowledged as righteous here. David is acknowledged as righteous in the text. He sinned. But there's a righteousness that came to him from God because of his confession of sin. And further, he was also also called here, verse 6, godly before God. And so here is his assurance to us. And then the last thing, uh, verse 11, there is joy and gladness as opposed to the misery and heaviness that we read about in verses 3 and 4. This is our assurance of pardon. David had to experience the man after God's own heart was often a man of a depraved heart. And so, therefore, he needed assurance of pardon because of his own sin. All right, so that's Psalm 32. Uh, By the way, this psalm serves as a foundation of faith and forgiveness for the Apostle Paul. 
When you look at Romans chapter 4, and he talks about sinfulness, what then shall we say that was gained by Abraham, our father, forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks, Psalm 32, of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so we see here that the same forgiveness that we experience today is the same forgiveness that David experienced as well. His was looking ahead to the cross, and we look back to the cross with great blessing. All right, Psalm 40. So after the struggles... Of, of uh, Psalms 38 and 39, you say, wait a minute, we didn't go over those. No, I'm, I'm having to skip a lot here to survey 150 Psalms in these five weeks, and next Sunday's the last Sunday. So what, what happens here is uh, that uh, in 38 and 39, there is struggle with sickness, there's near-death experiences, uh, there, are, uh, there are just things that are rattling his soul in 38 and 39. They're great psalms. Read them. You you will learn from them. But we come to Psalm 40, and it comes shining through with the hope of deliverance. Uh, The author of Hebrews, and by the way, I think we're going to hear more about Hebrews today. And uh, but but the author of Hebrews, and I, I picked up a couple of passages today from Hebrews because of where the series with our pastor is going. The author of Hebrews uses uh, this particular psalm to point to Jesus, the Messiah, a sacrificial death incomparably greater than the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament. Here's what you find in Hebrews ten, four through ten. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body that you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will uh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, here in Psalm 40, there is a foretaste of the sacrifice of Christ. God did not take delight in their physical offerings as far as a permanent sacrifice. That was a temporary thing. But they look forward and ahead to the fulfillment that would ultimately come in Christ. Psalm 41, here is the closing psalm of book 1. David is ascending to the throne now. He's gone through all the struggles with Saul. There have been battles there for sure, and yet he will continue to struggle with his sins and with the enemies. Why is that? 
because he is, David is the seed of the woman, and now the seed of David will come under attack by the seed of the serpent. And that's a, that, this is a conflict you'll find throughout the Psalms. There's the seed of the woman, or the seed of David, and the seed of the serpent, constantly in conflict with one another. Psalm 41 uh, begins as Psalm 1 does, blessed is. There are like 26 statements of blessing, or what is blessed in the book of Psalms, and this is another one of those. The central idea here is going to be that of mercy, and we will hear his pleas of mercy uh, uh, through and grace in his life in verses 4 and 10. And there are hints uh, to the psalm that can be easily detected of all of this. Uh, why does he need mercy? Why does he need grace? Because he's facing enemies. If you look, and you should have your Bible open. I hope you're doing that because I'm, I, I can't allude to all or quote all the passages today. But there are enemies. Three times he mentions enemies. There's illness that he's going through four times. Sin is mentioned. Yes, he, he still sins. Even though he's the Lord's anointed, even though he is the great king, he sins. He has to confess. And there is betrayal by a friend in verse 9. If we, if we look at this and how it is set up, how, how it can be handled, David, in verses 1 through 3, acknowledges promises of mercy. Lord, you have promised mercy to us. There is, David makes in verse 4, a plea for mercy from God, for God to give him grace in his time of need. Verses 5 through 9, why does he need mercy? Because of merciless treatment that he has received from the enemies. And then David offers prayers of mercy in verse 41. Let me, let me read to you, for instance, verses 5 and following. My enemies say to me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst of me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Again, we're going to see here another of the shadows of the cross. And so when he talks about here uh, that uh, he has a close friend, someone who is trusted, someone who eats bread at the table, and then he lifts up his heel. Can you see a picture of Judas Iscariot here? Because all of those were him. He was a man who was entrusted by Jesus. He kept the money. He was a man who ate Jesus' bread at the Last Supper. We know that. And he lifted up his heel against him. I think there's a hint there, too, about lifting up his heel of the serpent trying to crush the head of Christ. But there's a reversal that takes place. So we find David feeling the pain of betrayal by a close friend, John 13, 18. And yet, but verse 10 says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Don't let me be crushed here. 
So what began with a blessing? We've come to the last psalm in book 1. What began with blessing a man in Psalm 1-1 concludes with blessing God as we see here. Blessed, verse 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And you will see this or similar words at the end of each book. That's why we know that there are books. And here are the verses for the others that you will see, and we've already dealt with that before. Those are all doxologies that close out each book, part, probably part of the liturgy of the Second Temple uh, in the Old Testament times. So we come to book two, and verses 42 to 72, and a little bit of overview with this. The focus continues to be on King David, who pins most of the Psalms here, as was the case in book one. And David now is, is now reigning, even though there will be a couple of lapses back when he remembers something and he writes a psalm about persecution. But at least during the writing of most of these, he is reigning and appears to still have his hands full of trouble. You would think he's finally the king. There would be no problems, right? But it's not true. Psalms 42 and 43 open the second book here and appear to have been one psalm originally. And I say that because... The theme and phrases that seem to connect these two psalms uh, tell me that. There, there is a, there's a question that's haunting him, uh, David, that is coming from people outside of him. So there's, there's something has happened in, in the kingdom in which David is f- suffering for this, and everybody else is saying, what went wrong? What happened? I think from what I, my study and from what I read in the words here, I think this is dealing with the time when Absalom came in and took the kingdom. And, and David fled Jerusalem. He left the throne for Absalom, his son. And there are people, if you look at this in verses 3 and 10, if you have that in front of you, you will notice that there is uh, uh, some words along with this. They will say to me daily, they will say to me, continually, where is God? David, I thought you were the anointed king. Where's God now? You're not on the throne. We're out here in the wilderness. We're running around. We we have no place to go. We have left all of our goods. Where is God? I don't know if people ever say that to you, but do you ever say that to yourself? God, where, where, where were you in that? Look at verse 5 of 42 and then 5 of 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? You hear all these things. You think about the problems that are going on and what happens. (sighs) The burden, the weight, the heaviness. God, I I can't take anymore. Why? Why? Where are you? But he does some self-talk. Three times in the two psalms, there's a phrase that is repeated. And I love this. Hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in God. He gets, he keeps focusing his anxious heart on where his hope really lies. It is in God. Hope in God, David. So, there are deep concerns, though, here about the future. And what is going to happen here in all of this? 
So I want you to take a look now. We, that's the opening of the book. Where's God? Where's God? Where's God? But then we go to the other end of book two. We've got bookends, like we have in so many. Whenever you're reading Scripture and books of Scripture, it always helps to read the first chapter and the last chapter. I know you're not supposed to do that in a novel. Some of you do it. But, but, but here is a good thing, because you want to know the, the end game, what's really going on here. So if we look at the bookend on Psalm 72, we find that Solomon's words here, that he has written, and some have speculated it was a psalm of his coronation and its coronation prayer at his ascendancy to the throne. Solomon prays for the very hope mentioned in 42 and 43 that it would come through David's royal son, me, Solomon. So he's praying that, all right, this, this, is, this is my time. And here's, here's what he's praying. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, this is the hope of a greater kingdom even that David had through the royal son. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Sounds like a coronation, doesn't it? It's this celebration of this new guy. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed, which sounds a little bit like the Abrahamic covenant, does it not? In, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So, you know, you, you have, this is the start of hope, but the hope, is Solomon our hope? Is Solomon the one that's going to do it? Wasn't he wise? Wasn't he great? Didn't he build a kingdom? Didn't he have all these things? So, you know, Solomon may be our hope, right? Everybody with me on that? Maybe you're not. Good. There is even a line that draws our attention that reads, May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Sounds like a line from a Western. But here, here is, here is a, the licking of the dust. What, where do we find something about through the dust? Genesis 3, where the serpent would be going through the dust. Here is uh, maybe a veiled idea that, that, all right, here's Solomon. Now the enemy will be crushed. The serpent's head will be crushed now. You know, Genesis 3.15. So it sounds like all the enemies and the enemy behind it all and his seed might suffer judgment for their sin through Solomon and that kingdom. Hooray! So again, this is that faint hope. But will this set of Psalms find the covenant promises fully realized? That's the question. Well, that... Let's go back. Now we've seen the top and the tail. The top, the beginning of this, the first bookend, talks about we need hope. 72. Sounds like there's a lot of hope, but let's see. Interesting that as we move into these early psalms of the second book, come to Psalm 45 and we see the king and his beauty. Not the king in his beauty like the book of Thomas Schreiner, which is a great book. But we see the king and his beauty, the church, his bride. Early on here, we have this beautiful scene before us. A royal wedding takes place. Uh, we're not told whose it is. It may have been Solomon's. Uh, we don't know. But this is where for Psalm 45 enters the picture. There's a wedding song. 
fit for a king, composed to celebrate the day of his wedding. It's addressed to the king in verse 1, and there's a reference to the splendor and majesty of this king, the throne, the kingdom, the scepter. It's all there. This, these are exciting times for them. So what you're going to find here is the spirit of joy, celebration is all through it. Verses 1, 7, 8, 15. The air is filled with fragrances, wonderful spices. Verse 8. And Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 uses Psalm 45 to picture the king and his beauty. Uh, there is, uh, this psalm could be divided this way. There is praise for the royal groom, and we read magnificent things about this groom. And so whether it's David and someone or Solomon and someone, we don't know. But then there's also advice for the radiant bride. As you see here in verses 10 through 17, forget your past, honor your beloved, and enter the joy. You know, and I thought about this in these final words. This is actually picturing for us, too, in some senses, the Christian life and what it is. When we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, our King, when we are part of His bride, then we find that our past is forgiven and forgotten. He, he removes our sins from us. He remembers them no more. He casts them into the deepest seas. There's so many images in Scripture of how God handles our sins. Our past we forget. And we are to honor our beloved. What did it say in Psalm 2? Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And we come to him. Uh, to love and to honor Him, and then enter into your joy. Again, we're getting excitement here as we, we start out this whole section of, of this book, too. And we're seeing there's a king, and the king's going to reign, and we see there's a marriage here. Uh, we see the bride and all her glory as well. And uh, the, the one, this was uh, Schreiner, I believe, said that the daughter in the psalm finds its fulfillment in the salvation of the church, which includes the Gentiles. So there's a bigger picture going on here as well. Ephesians 5.32 and Revelation 19, we have references there in Revelation 21 as well. So this, this, uh, there's, there's even a benediction here in the wedding in 45. What does it say? In the place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. So we seem to have something wonderful going on here. Maybe there is hope yet. And so we move from the wedding scene to the palace, to the city of God. And Psalm 46 talks about that. Uh, I love the psalm. It's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, Maybe you'll remember I preached on it here two years ago. You don't remember. Um, I hardly remember. I had to look it up to see if I did. So Psalm 46 here. This is where we get the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Just listen to some of the words. This is a psalm of encouragement and hope. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Those words just resonate within my own heart because I remember years ago 
uh, we have three daughters. Uh, when our middle daughter was born, um, we got probably three or four months uh, after she had been born, and she developed some severe uh, problems in breathing in her lungs. And we went through some times in which uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. I, I was actually preaching in a school chapel at the time, and uh, a, a sister-in-law came, and I saw her walking back and forth, pacing b- uh, behind some of the doors. And I thought, what's, what's, what's going on? And as soon as I finished, she ran right up to me and said, Alyssa is in the hospital, and it's bad. I jumped in the car, went over there, went in, and we had our four-month-old child. They had put her in an incubator, which is made for a newborn. She was four months. She was crammed in there, literally. Seven months. She was seven months. Yeah, she was seven months. About four months is when we started seeing things happen. And seven months, and she's inside an incubator, and they are shaving her head to put in an IV in her head. I won't tell you everything. I, by the way, that, that day I sat there in the hospital. I read through the entire book of Psalms sitting there. And when I talked to the doctor, who was a good friend of ours, in fact, a man in our church, I said, shoot straight with me what we got here. I said, I need to know how I need to handle this. And they said, 50-50. You might think those are good odds. That's not good odds for a father to hear at all, is it? <laughs> it? It's tough. But I remember that Sunday morning, I don't think, Kathy, you were there, but I sat down with Elena on the couch before we went to church. And I said to her, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What a great psalm. They take on meaning as you enter into David's experiences, as you go into sufferings yourself. So the psalms mean more and more to you. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though mountains are be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roam, a roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its dwelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. You know, God fulfilled that. We saw, we had several mornings before we fully saw it, but we saw the morning dawn when we moved her from one hospital to another that was more capable of handling the situation. But there's a river, and God is there to satisfy the hunger, the longings of our heart. Psalm 47. He is the king in the time of trouble in the city of God, but he's the king who is over all. 47 is a jubilant song of praise to the true king. And here in typical Presbyterian style, it says, Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Why are you laughing? I appreciate the way we sing over there. And I appreciate how people open up. There, there is something about the praise of God 
that is energized by the joy of Christ within your heart. And you sing to the glory and praise of God. That's magnificent. And why? Why shout to God? Why? Loud songs of praise. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. There is a great king. Just doesn't happen to be Solomon. Oh, spoiled it for you. And so he says, 6 and 7, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. He reigns. He reigns today. When you look around and you're discouraged about things you see around the world, just remember, God is still reigning. He is on the throne. In spite of whoever is uh, in Moscow, regardless of whoever is in Washington, there is a God who is on the throne and in control. Forty-eight. Focus back on the city of God again. You see how these, these psalms are kind of lining up and they, they have arranged, these have been orderly arranged. Uh, we read about the city of our God, the holy mountain, the citadels, the fortress, the towers, the ramparts. I mean, can you imagine going up to Jerusalem and seeing all these things in that day and how David and Solomon were both building up the kingdom with all of its splendor and the praises? Verse 10 reaches to the ends of the earth. But... But when you read Psalm 48, the most important thing is verses 13 and 14. Tell the next generation that this is God, our God. Ever and ever, He will guide us forever. You're going to find here in, in these coming Psalms, it reaches kind of a pinnacle in 78. Uh, which we may or may not get to today, but the, this, this sense of telling the next generation. We have covenant children, right? Okay, uh, most of you have covenant children. Your biggest responsibility is telling, hey, this is our God. This is the God who is forever and ever, and He will be your guide throughout your life. Don't just think because you have had your child baptized and he's a covenant child, she's a covenant child, that you're, you bring them to church and you're absolved of your responsibility. Your responsibility is to build into their lives what Psalm 1 says, what Psalm 2 says, that you take refuge in Christ. That you, that you meditate in His Word. That you build these things into your life. I'm going to move on here. I'm, I'm preaching too much. Psalm 53 is the next one. And, and here in this next section, it, it, we begin to see a focus on judgment and judgment of the wicked. Psalm 53, verses 1 and 2, paint an eye-opening picture of a, of a dark world. Let me get there for you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Now, we have seeker churches today. Hear about that. 
I don't know how many people are really seeking God, though. They may be seeking experiences, Band-Aid, other things. But the one who is seeking is God himself. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 4. He's seeking for true worshipers. He is the seeker. We're the lost. We're the little lambs that are out there needing to be gathered. So, the interesting thing here is that was the world then. It was the world in Paul's day. I'll show you that in a moment. It's the world in our day as well. Things haven't really changed. There's a way of the righteous and a way of the wicked, Psalm 1. And so you're always going to see the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of David. So Israel is therefore seeking restoration. Look at uh, verse 6. Oh, that salvation would, uh, salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Now, all of a sudden, you're seeing a shift. Something is happening. And people aren't seeing what they thought they would see. Their hopes are dashed. And so, oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. We need salvation. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So there's, here's our mentioning of restoration. Now people are looking for something. Things are happening. Paul laid down the same accusation about our world. When you read Romans 3.10, uh, have you ever noticed when reading Romans 3.10 how it gives a whole list? There's none righteous, no, not one, and you've got all these other things. There are psalms. He picks up this psalm as well as Psalm 5, 140, uh, Psalm 10, and Psalm 36, and quoting how wicked people are in Paul's day. Paul will then later write about the wickedness of our day as well. So, is salvation going to come? Salvation would come in Zion. Paul even said there, right after he talked talk about wickedness, what's the next thing? What's the, what's the bright spotlight that's turned on? Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed. It's come forth through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, from that point, there's encouragement and comfort in uh, Psalms 54, 55, with Psalm 56 dealing with our personal fears and how we handle those. But we've seen some of that. So, I want to now take us over to Psalm 66. Psalm 66, here, the historical setting for the psalm is, is 8th century B.C., during the time of the Assyrian invasion and the attack of Israel when Hezekiah was king. The nation was enduring hard times, but the presence and the power of God were evident as they were delivered from their foes. In gratitude, the psalmist here writes to offer his own praise, to call the nation to praise, and even to invite all nations to participate in the acknowledgement of the greatness of God. The psalmist probably uses part of worship, the, the liturgy, uh, for the people of God then at the temple during one of the feast days, maybe the Feast of Passover, Feast of Weeks, or Feast of Tabernacles. It seems that this particular psalm best fits Passover. But the psalm is also a song of praise that moves from a global perspective to a national perspective and finally to a personal perspective so that we move from the whole earth to the Jewish community 
and then to the lone psalmist in this psalm. And you read for, through it for yourself sometime. But Derek Kidner, who is one of the, the finest of commentators uh, for, for the book of Psalms, uh, he, he died a few years ago. I can't remember what year it was. But uh, he has been one of, the, one of the guys who did great groundwork in the Psalms. He titled the psalm, God of All, of Many, of One. And how God is the God of all the earth, but He's the God of many that come to Him. He's the God of one. He's the God of me globally. He is saying here, 1 through 7, let the nations praise God. He uses the term all the earth twice here in this section. Nationally, let the Lord's people, Israel, praise God, verses 6 through 12. And there's a change in pronouns. Now it's our, us, you, and then personally, let me praise God, verses 13 to 20. And you note the first person, personal pronoun, I, 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 throughout that whole section. So here is this great psalm of praise I wanted you at least be aware of. And we come here toward the end uh, of this. I, I love Psalm 71. Uh, this is a psalm with which I can identify. Can you tell from the first line? It's talking about an old man. Is he talking about David? We don't know. Uh, it doesn't say. But uh, it's certainly interesting that it comes just before what we read in the next psalm, the final psalm of book 2. And uh, where it says there that the prayers of David are ended. So we know that those, even though we're going to see some later, uh, in reality when they put this all there, here's where the prayers of David end. Uh, probably those first two books were the original set of Psalms. And then, of course, we got more added later as other kings came along and as it was added there in the Old Testament times. So it's, it's time for a transition in Israel. And the next psalm, is by Solomon, as we saw earlier. I've already talked about that psalm. Psalm 72 is about the new king and the new kingdom. Uh, this anonymous author writes this, You, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. And so you, you read that and, and you note here that he's talking about verse 9. He's talking about time of old age. You see in verse 9 again, strength is spent. Uh, you read in verse 18, in old age and gray hairs he has come. But his passion is still for one thing. And, and th this, I think, is uh, so wonderful for us to see again after what we'd said in an earlier psalm. He says, O God... Do not forsake me until, I'm not ready to go home yet. I'm an old man. I'm not ready to go home. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. He wants to live a full life of praise and proclamation to God. What a worthy goal. That this, your whole life is summed up. In your praise of God and your proclamation of God and who He is. Wonderful truths there for us. I'd love to be like that godly old man. Psalm, uh, book 3 of the Psalms, 73 through 89. I've only got 
a couple of minutes here because we need to dismiss early to do setup. So though Solomon uh, takes the throne, hindsight tells us he is not the anointed king that will fulfill the Davidic covenant. Though he is successful and wise in so many ways, Solomon failed in keeping the law of God in his heart, and his heart led the nation away from God. The nation was soon divided after his death. And after the throne was occupied by a mixture of good men and bad men, the nation ultimately was invaded, conquered, the people dispersed, taken into exile. The promises of God remained unfulfilled. So book three finds us in a time of soul-searching and internal struggle. McCann writes this in his commentary, uh, that book three has been decisively shaped by the experience of exile and dispersion. So in book three, we will find these sections and points of special interest. Psalm 73 to 83, to the sons of Asaph, uh, or, or from the sons of Asaph. Psalms 85, 80, 84, 85, 86 is the Psalm of David, as we'll see in the next point. 87, 88, these are all the sons of Korah. And then Psalm 89 is from Ethan the Ezraite. What about that one? That is a great psalm. It's a long psalm. I think it was 52 verses, I think. And it's amazing. That's for, for next week. We'll have to come to that one. But here's, here's what we're facing uh, for all of that. And so in this book three, there are going to be numerous laments. And, and the voices are going to rise up from the whole community of God's people rather than just individuals. And yet these laments, you will find that they are dispersed well with, with psalms that are grasping for a thread of hope from God. God, where are you? God, we need you. God, come to our aid. And so, and, and that's where it, in the very first of these, and I'll stop here, Psalm 73, there is confusion among God's people. They're looking around the world, and they say, why do the wicked prosper? Why do people who do what's wrong get away with it? I never get away with anything. But there's an answer there. Uh, Psalm 73 is very dark as it opens. But he gets an answer when he goes to the temple and he remembers Psalm 1. There's a way of the wicked and it leads to destruction. There's a way of righteousness that leads to life everlasting. Father, thank you for this time we've had together this morning. And thank you for your grace and goodness to all your people. And Lord, I pray that what we've talked about today will, will bring um, some encouragement to those who maybe are sitting here today and they're suffering. They're going through some hard times. They have questions that are unanswered. And Lord, may you be our hope, our trust, our faithful God, who through your covenant love, your steadfast love, ministers to every single need here. Bless us in this next service, and may we hear your voice as our pastor speaks. And we, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.